Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All what right. Beautiful video. Rational MF, rational mother fracker. What's that stand for? Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> the same thing. That's that the first time question. I, I oh put the two and two together. Um, I bet a you lot of people guys. are going to be happy Meb that this dude. one's over. <laughs> Meb the Meb dude. dude. The I dude divides, bro. I, I, was, I was trying, now that you guys mentioned the Lebowski, I was watching some YouTube clips and I was trying to, I'm, I'm out of, I'm out of home, out of office. I'm homeless right now. So I don't really have access to my clothes, but I was going to try to find some sort of dude outfit. And uh, this is the closest I could come a little, a little like a little. Yeah. I don't have Corey. Oh, yeah. Corey, right. Corey wears this like on the daily, this sort of like weird sweater <laughs> robe yeah. sort of mismatch. The sweater. Maybe not in the Caymans, but in L.A. Yeah. Spotted in the wild wearing it quite a lot. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, that's too good. So where that's are you at? Good. So you're 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 homeless right now, but uh, where are you located? I'm homeless, so I'm open to some uh, travel destinations in the next few weeks. Um, I tried to time my home renovation for the worst possible time of say the last twenty years uh, between supply chain mm-hmm. and rising costs and everything else. Uh, and uh, it was supposed to be done about a month ago. So we're on, we're on pace, um, for, for my expectations. So hopefully, hopefully soon, I'm still in LA. Now, are you renovating next to, to, uh, Wes in Puerto Rico or, you know, we're, uh, we're still LA bound down we're, by 30%. We're, we're still LA bound. I love Puerto Rico. I, uh, um, not quite sure we're going to transplant, but, uh, I, uh, I thought it was gorgeous. We had a great time. Indeed. 
And, and the best part is I, I got to muck up the bedroom before Philbrick came to visit a week later. They're like, Philbrick, I'm like, don't even change the sheets. Like that guy, like just, just, no, no, I just tell insisted him we, we slept on top of the sheets. We're all good. Yeah. No, I insisted. I oh. actually had them pull the sheets and then put them back on. Uh, but we were there and Wes is like the, the day we showed up, there was like a big BBC article, BBC article that like is, it was like the, or timeout. I can't remember, but it said is the best restaurant in America in Puerto Rico. There's like a little farmhouse outside of uh, Palmas del Mar, and uh, we went and had a, actually a pretty, pretty awesome meal. But I had a blast. If I was, uh, if I was childless, probably I'd definitely consider it. Uh, on the on the west coast, like Rincon near some of the surf mm. breaks, but yeah. definitely love to visit. Well, you have to get your uh, tickets ramped up for your visit to Cayman, bro. Yeah, man. Well, you like guys come up with the event. When's the next? When's Are the you next in the event? West coast? Definitely have to schedule an event. Rod's on that like a, a fat kid on a smarty. I mean, it doesn't have to be like a well, fancy event. You can just, you can just call it a, like a, a happy hour and I'll come down. So we got to, mm. you know, there's a there's a big Real Vision um, meetup in November of this year that I'm sure we can get you an invite to. Do a last time I was engagement. there. Last time I was there was during the Zika tour. That was it. Like ah, that's right. Yeah. I remember that. Your wasn't yeah. your 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 son just about to be born? Like yeah, did so, you come with a pregnant wife? Why well, no, she wouldn't go. And I I went to like I was in like Mexico City. I was in like four <laughs> places on my Zika tour, and she's like, "You come back. You're sleeping in the other room for about two months." So uh, so you were the uh, you did an OG quarantine. That was yeah. way before quarantine. It was cool. You know, ahead uh, of ahead of my time. Yeah. Well, before a hey, before we start jumping into the investment stuff, just to make sure everybody knows that you shouldn't take investment advice from a YouTube show at four o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, because we don't know anything about you, and anything we talk about, all performance is not guaranteed of anything. So there you go. Now we can have a chat. Just wanted to get that on the record. <laughs> Speak for yourself. You can take advice from me, listeners. <laughs> That's so true. It's so unfair. Mm-hmm. They can. <laughs> So you had a big announcement today. What are yeah. You oh my God. You're giving, you're giving something pretty important away. Give What's us the dr- dude, well, give us the airdrop. What's the, the coin big, we're getting? Meb coin? Said, it's got to be a big, big announcement for me. Uh, maybe not as big announcement for anybody else. You know, we um we struggle with a lot of things in our investing world. One of which is um, historically been just information, right? Like and and dealing with this just deluge of content all the time and separating what's good from what's bad noise from signal and so um part of the problem i said is i want someone to curate this and um the problem with that was that no one was doing it so we said hey maybe we'll start doing it um and there's there's a giant leaf blower outside so you guys tell me if you pick that up it's too loud i'll What's that? I fucking bit. hate those I'm things. Here. I swear to Just God, they, they're no more effective than any other, you know, than a, some sort of. Seems like a big opportunity for electric based leaf blowers i don't know that's like it <laughs> yeah, on it. yeah 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 anyway so you guys just wave at me and tell me if it gets obnoxious i'll, I'll move rooms to no, the bathroom I, I I no can't we can't hear a thing i've always wanted to do a live stream from the toilet so uh <laughs> from the loo you guys give me give me that excuse anyway give me the excuse. so you know we did this 10 years ago where we started this service i said look i'm going to curate what comes across my desk so the best available public research 
but also the best available private research. So if I reach out to my friends that run newsletters or boutiques and say, hey, or investment banks, um, all these various avenues for research and say, we'll share the two or three best each week. It's called the Idea Farm. Uh, you can go to theideafarm.com. We charge 500 bucks a year for it. Uh, and we did some other bells and whistles. We had some like Excel-based uh, models. We do quarterly valuation updates, on and on. Um, and been doing that for almost a decade. This summer would have been 10 years. Um, and it's been awesome. But, you know, as our business grows on my day job, you know, like you guys managing money, um, you know, my, the underpinnings, which has always been very mission driven and, and sort of a, a hill I'll die on about investing access and research. Granted, this is more pro focus, but I said, you know what? I, we want to try to make this free. So we're opening it up starting this uh, Sunday. So it's now universally free to anyone. You can sign up, pass it along. Um, we're the way we're doing it now is every Sunday you'll get one email. So you can read it with your barons, uh, having coffee, watching uh, football or sports or whatever it may be. It's going to have the top couple research pieces, the co top couple, um, you know, podcasts. We'll do private. Re I mean, we always ask permission. So if it's Goldman, or some private newsletter, we say, hey, can we share this? Usually they say, uh, sure, because it's going to a very, you know, curated list. And the best part, in my mind, is that all the archives are now free. So you have 10 years of, I, I got to count it, but it's somewhere between 500 and 1,000 research pieces. Um, wow. And you guys have been in there? You guys have been featured? So we'll, we'll go Google. We'll, we'll search the website, see how many uh, pieces y'all have in there. Um but, There's a lot of data uh, too. Like you share a lot of databases, Excel yeah. sheets and stuff that have been really useful for, you know. So we, we've hired full-time people now to run run this kind of show and improve it. So listeners, if, you, uh, if you've if you been subscribers, let us know what, what you're interested in. Um, I, you know, I, 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 we have some ideas for it, but we're just excited to, to get it out there. Um, you know, the, the personal emotional feeling of it being kind of gated or quarantined, um, you know, is, is always, it's been tough for me, but, but Hey, you know, it's helped us survive and build our business. So, uh, thanks to all the people that, you know, were subscribers for the last decade. Uh, but we're, we're pretty stoked on it. Yeah. That's very that's exciting. Gift. That's it's a little pain. I say a little painful for me personally, cause I'm just get, like, like anytime you're like shutting down a business that's actually like successful and running, um, it's a, it's a, weird feeling you know having like y'all you know starting things from scratch and bootstrapping and then moving to uh you know a period where it's just not not a focus um it's, it's painful for me but it's friday we're doing uh <laughs> we're doing resolve happy hour so i'm cool with it well cheers man that's that's yeah congratulations generous. yeah and I'm yeah it's, it's nice to have some ballast to the wealth management business or the asset management business right that can that can be volatile and I mean, once you get above a certain threshold, then your belly's not dragging on the runway every couple of years when strategies are out of favor, then, you know, you've got some more latitude, but it's nice to have that, that ballast to um, keep, keep the business running when. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the curation trend, there's still a lot that could be developed there, not just in our world, but in any, any demographics, there's a few businesses that have been trying to do it, but I, I think it has long legs. I think a lot of people would characterize it now as like, Hey, I'm going to do an AI focused, you know, filter to this. But, um, but I think that's a huge business opportunity of actually teasing out like 
the good content from just the the noise. Are you still doing the um, uh, the the podcast sort of uh, oversight stuff as part of your communication of good content curation? Yeah. Um, So it'll it'll send out the top two or three podcasts each week, investment related, and sometimes we'll throw in a a wild card that that might be Mm -hmm. something else. The cool part about this is it also has free Spotify playlists that goes back like four years now. So if you look up Idea Farm Spotify, it's got the top two or three podcasts each week for the past four years. And you combine these two, and I and I this is self-serving, but 99.9% of it is not my content, it's someone else's. I think if you were a student, a young person, even a pro, and you go listen to these podcasts, you go read these pieces from the top institutions all over the world managing trillions of dollars. Like to me, that's way better than a grad MBA or PhD degree. 100%. I mean, like, the, I mean, it's incredible. And so, anyway, I don't know anyone that's plowed through them all, <laughs> but uh, but if you have, uh, awesome. But but if you search on Spotify, and we need reminds me, we need that that link um, to, the, to the site. But uh, there's three or four years on there, and y'all got some too. So we'll have to see yeah, which ones yeah. they are. You know, it's always interesting when somebody comes up to me and says, listen, I really want to learn about the market. I want to I want to get that education. Where'd you go to school? You know, what do you think my career path should be? And when I ask them specifically, is it that you want to manage money? Then honestly, you know, an undergrad in commerce, an MBA, a CFA is not going to get you anywhere close to the content that we've kind of all created in this little bubble, right? There is, yeah. there's a lot more value in the, the things that you put together, that Wes put together, Corey, Resolve, you know, that kind of Fintwick crew that I never, I never send them anywhere else. You know what I mean? It's you know, the, so the much value. Didn't exist kind of closing, closing the loop on that. I think there's opportunity for some business models. I mean, you have masterclass that does it. And I was joking a while back on Twitter. I'm like, you have masterclass for wine, barbecue. The Franklin one is awesome, by the way. On and on. I was like, how do you not have any about investing or any like day-to-day life skills? Uh, I said, it's an opportunity. And you're starting to see some of these business models pop up. I saw one the other day um, uh, for a startup that's doing kind of this life school. You know, all these things you weren't taught in high school, but you need to be an adult, right? Like some of these just basic stuff. Um but one for kind of one-on-one level investing, but then also 201, 301 levels. And, you know, having someone, I, I don't want to do it, it's way too much work. Having someone curate that sort of curriculum, um, you know, to me, that's a eight-figure idea, maybe nine-figure idea. But, um, but well, I saw a couple of master classes on TikTok on options trading, um, you know, really small cap stocks. So I'll send it your way, Matt. Maybe you could put it in the idea farm. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay, so that's a very exciting announcement. Um, in the main business, what are you excited about today? What have you been seeing? Excited about today, specifically, uh, you guys timed this interestingly. What what the market do today? Down three-ish? Minus four for the NASDAQ, minus three for the other stuff. Um, whatever. Sell, I was selling May and go away, man. I, I was joking on Twitter. I said, I'll see you all in the fall. I'm, I'm part yeah. Southern, so I can bring out my, my Southern roots. Um, I said, I'd love to go on a four-month sabbatical. Although after the last couple of years, man, I was like, can we just have like a quiet quarter or just like nothing is going on in the world? Um, you know, we have crazy inflation, wars in Europe, pandemic is seemingly kind of just sticking down. with us. 
Um, so what am I excited about? Uh, that's a good question. Well, um, as you're pondering that, do you think this this uh, action today is a bunch of preemptive sell in May stuff? Is it is it just the simple I was, um, folks just saying whatever I'm out? Um, those I was I was talking to a buddy last night. Um, we were golfing, which listeners probably laugh. I'm not really a golfer, but when everything closed down, too, when everything closed down in L.A., um, there, like it's like the only thing the like golf lobby had to be, you know, the politicians or something. They kept the golf courses open. They even shut the beaches for a while, which is obviously insane. Uh, so you couldn't serve, couldn't do anything. So I started playing golf um, mainly for this great happy hour spot so listeners if you're in la and you want to meet me at finmar let me know i'll take you out it's a 15 dollar muni um but was playing with a friend yesterday and he's like you know meb it's market i know your shtick uh all the indicators in my mind speaking to large cap u.s stocks are looking pretty pretty gnarly um and we've been kind of doing this message for a long time where we talk about the market in terms of yellow light and red light and yellow light for me is like all these sig- signals, valuation, um, you know, all the crazy stuff we saw last year. We have a, a tweet st- thread that we were doing for a while called What in Tarnation, where we talked about just kept adding chart after chart. This is, it was in February 2021 of just the craziness, right? It's so, so similar to 20, uh, 2099. And so you go read that and it's just like, God, what were, what were, what were people thinking back, you know, a, a little over a year ago? Anyway, all these yellow light things. And then, but we've always said like, you know, the final boss and even historically speaking too, this is the worst setup is when you have an expensive market, but then when it enters a downtrend, you know, so once it actually rolls over and so you kept having for the past couple of years, you know, all these yellow lights, but the trend may roll over briefly, but go right back up by, by the dip, right? Um, and so now it's, it's rolled over and what we know from history is you kind of do that quadrant of cheap uptrend S and P historically has done like 17% a year. Um, but expensive uptrend was number two and that's usually okay. You get, you get reasonable returns, but expensive downtrend is where things get, you know, gnarly. And usually historically the returns are zero. Um, and so you couple this with all the stuff going on. I mean, let's not even get to inflation. Like you want to, you want to see a, uh, just vitrolic, angry response on Twitter. Um, look at some of the tweets where I talk about inflation and, and stock multiples. Historically stocks hate, hate high inflation. And so, um, you have average multiples, then you have high inflation multiples and, and those are like 10, you know? So, um, so long-winded typical meb answer you guys don't you guys don't get one minute one minute answers me talking to my friend playing golf and he's he said you know what what do you think this can do i said look you know maybe we rip right right back up maybe we uh go down a little bit um i think the most likely scenario from peak to trough is is like a 08 2000 you know down 50 he's like oh my god that's crazy i'm like what do you mean it's crazy like that's markets go down 50 percent all the time like Look at half the foreign markets over the past decade. Uh, you live in any number of these countries. They go down 50%. They call that a Tuesday, you know? Um, uh, so, I mean, Rod from Latin America, I mean, half those countries, you know, like it's that happens, you know, once, once, <laughs> once a year, I feel like. Um, so not a big deal, but like to me, super. And, and the weird part, and people love to dunk on me for this. I say, look, my largest fund 
is a long only stock fund. So it's not like I'm just specifically talking my book here. This is kind of what I see from the research. And you guys just did this amazing podcast and we got to talk to him recently too, um, Auntie uh, Ilmanen. Um, and he's put out a great book, which I would show on the show. I would uh, hold it up, but it's actually my, my laptop stand. Um, expected, expect, expected returns. What is it? Low investing. Investing in mid, low expected returns. Okay. Sorry. I, I was enjoying the book so much the other day at a lunch uh, place having a, at a restaurant. I, I left it there and had to go back and get it about an hour later. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, you know, I think today uh, is normal. As we know, in downtrends, volatility is much higher, both up and down, you know, so you get two thirds or two thirds or 70% of the worst days happen in downtrends, but the best days too. So you see that volatility expand and you know, this, this feels like, um, feels like that, you know, it, in the market, the U S large cap weighted is kind of the last shoe and it's down only like 12% or something, you know, it's nothing yeah. yet. And now, I guess we're getting a lot of carnage official, under the water, but yeah. Yeah. I guess we're getting that official close below the 10 month moving average too, as of now for the S and P as an example. And uh, so you've got your 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 initial work back. What was that? The Ivy portfolio back in the day. Yeah, man. The ten month moving average. So you know, things behave differently below the ten month. I kind of like it when the market month. closes on the final day of the month. To, to you know, in this way that gives all the monthly moving average products a hard decision to make. <laughs> yeah, well, I think but like that's month. the thing is like you know I mean last <laughs> month was hard because it was close. This month yeah, is yeah, not yeah. hard. It's like you are now five percent below. below. You're, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Below. We Sorry. we've talked about this probably on on prior ones, but you know, look, a lot of the research that we put out as 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 well as others is meant to be kind of instructive and basic and simple. And I think the challenge, particularly with the tra- time series ideas. But it really applies to any investing methodology. You know, people love to get um, set on one asset or one concept. You know, I'm a gold bug. Guys are Mm -hmm. Canadian. You can resonate. (laughs) I'm a dividend guy. I'm bearish. I'm a whatever. And the challenge. Those are all Canadian sentiments. (laughs) i think those are all adam said i'm trying to speak to my audience guys give me a break i'm reading the room but if you but if you look at it and think about it um that's probably like the worst way to be an investor is to be inflexible and be adhered to one dogmatic outcome right and so there's a there's a quote that i just can't get out of my head um by adam grant and he talks about he's look i don't want and i get it backwards now because i play it both ways but he's like, I don't want my ideas to become my identity. So in my head, if I'm like, all right, I'm a, I'm a gold bug, gold, you know, all day, all I'm doing is looking for confirming gold going up evidence, when in reality, you should be doing the opposite. Like a good portfolio manager analyst is constantly like trying to tear down their ideas. And so, but, but the opposite is true. I don't want my identity to become my ideas. And so um, applied to something like uh, some of these systems that have a very specific trigger to me is crazy, you know, like y'all talk about ensembles, Corey and all these others. And, and to me, that's the most thoughtful way to do it. Now, why don't people do that? It's because people secretly like to gamble, right? So how many times you guys had a conversation with someone and said, hey, what do you guys think about US stocks? What do you guys think about Twitter? What do you guys think about Bitcoin? 
Should I, I own it? Should I sell it? It's never like, should I sell a quarter of it? You know, maybe should I dollar cost average into this? Maybe I should, because they want to gamble or they want to be totally in or totally out, which is crazy. And so a lot of the ensemble ideas, you know, to me, it's a much more thoughtful approach, but I, but it's, it's particularly fun watching some of the washing around in, in whether it's the momentum funds or names where you can see that window just very like, so the perfect example all time on this is a long-term moving average system applied to 1987. And if you had right. something like a 200 day or quicker, um, shorter, you would have been out during the crash. I mean, people were freaking out about a 3% down day. That was 20. Uh, and then 200 day or longer, and you were invested long during the crash. So career defining outcome. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if you had an ensemble, it would have been, you know, mixed. Half in, half um, out. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And that's a win. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to cheer for that. No, but, no, but this <laughs> is boring. it, right? They like this is who winner. Who they gets the big check? Parade. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, who, yeah. who gets the, the blue check check mark on Twitter, right? I mean, Mab, I know you got a blue check mark. I get it. But and you, you're the tur- exception, It's more right? turquoise. It's actually just like a, a emoticon that's turquoise. I, I kind of I kind of feel like Elon is going to cancel you soon. But <laughs> there's too much free speech coming out of you. The vast majority of guys that get this type of following make absolute statements. This is something like in human nature that people love. They want to know for like who's the most certain and the most adamant that something's going to happen. And... <laughs> What ends up happening is the person that got it right by flipping heads 10 times will bubble yeah. up to the top. Right. Who, got the, right, who got it right right now? Ex ante. Like who yeah. got it the like, most about, right about, right now? Dr. Doom, all yeah, those guys in 2008 that got it right, like uh, Peter Schiff. Uh, who's a Dr. Doom? Perfect case study. Uh, uh, Prector. Uh, Rubini. But Rubini was a woman from. Um, well, because there's another Doom, which is Faber, but he's actually pronounces it yeah. Faber. So there's a couple yeah. Doomers. Yeah. Mark but, Faber. Yeah. Um, somebody, somebody's emailed me the other day and they're like, da da da, I've been following your dad. I'm like, who's my, wait, who do you think my dad is? Because I don't think it is who you think it is. <laughs> oh, dude, that is perfect. Do you think it's David no, Faber? Do you think it's Mike awesome. Faber? Do you think it's. No, um, over I, time, you're starting, you're starting to slowly look he like could him, be my I guess. Dad. That's, the, yeah. uh, that's where you he, end up. I've yeah. heard about that, Faber. He could be my dad. I'll go hang but, out with that. Yeah, but so sure. um, one one comment is like, if you look at some of these star portfolio managers over time that people flock to, and let's be clear, this is not just a retail phenomenon. Like advisors and institutions consistently get drawn just like, you know, flies to, you know what, because it's not just, it's not just an individual, it's a human condition. They're universally smart, they're charismatic, they're very opinionated, but they're often too contrarian. So they tell you things you may not have heard before, and, and we could name probably a dozen of those right now. Um, and that's a great way to play that game if you want to raise money. Now, the problem then is you're, you're building this cult of, of personality about you know well, chasing hot managers. And you, as we've seen, Bogle's been talking about this for decades uh that's a really really bad idea to chase the hot hand um particularly discretionary yeah well, look, a, meredith, meredith, meredith whitney was the other one right well yes For thousands yeah, yeah, yeah she yeah. got hot for and the, today the isn't it isn't it arc isn't that the same thing a woman it was on TV arc. And well ETF yeah maybe says, maybe a year says ago that she she expects a 40 percent rate of return in the next 12 months i mean rod, you're, when you rod, you was were, arc like Rod, you're you're out of you're out of date. First of all, that was um, 
if you were in Miami, uh, that was up to 50 percent oh. from 40. And that's from um, share prices of a few weeks ago. So it's it's up to it. The math should be up to 55 percent today uh, and pretty soon up to 60 percent. But we, we ran a study on industries over the past 100 and 100 years in French Fama and looked at how many rolling periods, even these tiny industries like coal stocks, right, had 50% returns for five years. And it was like point, no, this is 40%. It was like point, it was a rounding error of 0.01%. Basically, it's happened like two times. It was like coal stocks and like something else. Um, and the heart, like it, 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 uh, it's, yeah, we could go down an entire rabbit hole there, but that, that. We're down the hole, man. Give it to us. Yeah, let's go. Sorry. We, we, let's do okay. it. Here's no, a, no, but, do it. But, so you went okay. down the rabbit hole and you say, I mean, okay, it, how it often is this just like you, 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 the, the realm of what is possible and what is probable and, um, you know, the conviction to say that, you know, it, it's, it's um, to me, um, really hurts credibility, right? Like I, it's just Almost it's irresponsible. A, 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 right. I think it's really, really irresponsible. Um, but, you know, um, as uh, as Dumb and Dumber said, you know, there's there's a chance. So, uh, <laughs> so you mean know. there's a chance? You mean so, so a let chance. me ask you a question because this is something that is really tough for me to reconcile. Right? So we talk about these people that talk their books and they're they're overly confident. They are narrowly focused, and it's their value systems fully attached to that that leads to irresponsible outcomes. I found myself today in, a, in an interview that Mike and I did uh, about one of our, our ETF in Canada. Um, I found myself being very proud, very dogmatic, very over the top about how much I believe people should invest in this broadly diversified way with risk parity and long short trend and multi multi strategy futures and tail protection as a whole solution for and and i stopped myself for a moment and people and thought man people must think i'm a zealot a lunatic for being so aggressively married to this concept so i'm trying to i'm trying to find a way to articulate the difference between believing in a in a framework of diversity and diversification and believing in the framework of bitcoin moon and because people will see it as the same thing. Why, why, why did you just thing? extrapolate from Zealot immediately to Bitcoin? Like, no, you didn't have to cross yeah, that bridge. I, we no, just lost half our I, live streamers. There's, um, there's no Zealots in Bitcoin, dude. It's just called Bitcoin. <laughs> and you missed the that was the that was the uh, the conference right before we were there. It's ten times I as know, many people. Right? So what do we know? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I mean, look, it, it, it goes back to you know, I, I think one. Um, an appreciation and an understanding of history uh, two, of just being thoughtful of like, it's, it's like talking to um, experienced professional gamblers and speculators, but like say in Vegas. And so you have the Bill Gross, the Ed Thorpe, um, you know, the, the card counters who understand how the game is played. And then you have the people and you go sit down at a casino um, who sit there and they play totally by feel. Now, those people may win, right? And they believe it, you know? And not only that, they often will, like, 
yell at the card counters for playing irrationally or doing something that, oh, you hit that, you see, because you hit that, I got a seven, and now I busted, like, I blame you, right? Um, they believe that. And, and now you would say that that's not a thoughtful um, understanding of how the game works. It's not like, and you go to a poker table, like those, you, and it's actually really depressing to sit there long enough because those people all get washed out. It's like a old, um, was it rounders where there's like a, a time series of like the pros sitting there and they just keep churning the empty seat, right? Like it's just eventual, like it's an inevitable outcome. And so um, just by the law of large numbers and power outcomes in our investing world, I mean, we could say this with so many examples. I mean, this is why people are consistently attracted to expensive lottery ticket stocks, right? Because one out of how many ever becomes an Amazon and people forget the other hundred that are zeros. Right. Um, but so they're consistently attracted to them. Um, but uh, the good news is, and this is like one of my favorite quotes we consistently say is like the biggest compliment you give someone in our world is surviving. And you make that list of the hot manager, the zealots for the past 50 years, that list is like a mile long right? Like everyone's forgotten them at this point. They're gone. And you talk about the late nineties and Janice and all the other names and, and, and crazy things, but it's not just in, you know, bubbles, but other countries. I just started watching a great documentary, um, not documentary, but show on HBO, Tokyo Vice, but it was, reminds me of the, uh, the eighties boom in Japan. Right. Mm. So, um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's, a uh, you have the professionals that understand the game and the history. Um, and you'll always have the people that, them that honestly believe what they're selling. And then you have the people that don't believe what they're selling. And, you know, that's an entire another category, but, uh, but, but I think it's, it's great to believe in what you're um, you know, what, what you're pushing is the wrong word, what you're uh, what you believe in. And then we get into the other whole concept of skin in the game you know, investing right alongside your, your ideas. So, um, but it's a story as old as time, you know, speaking, speaking of Truth. believing in what you're, what you're selling, um, like, is anyone, is anyone surprised that despite the fact that, that ARC has had this just incredible round trip that investors have been buying continuously all the way down? I mean, this, I don't know that we've seen quite a phenomenon quite like this, in the past other is than that, sort of is that to maybe maybe elaborate adam because i didn't i didn't know what what i understand well, is arcs they've been adding money weighted returns so, no, so no, there is positive cash oh, flow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and yeah. tell everybody because been, i didn't know so I'm, I'm assuming everyone else doesn't know either yeah eric beltunas just highlighted that over the last couple of days just the fact yeah. that arc has been accumulating you know new creates like there are people continuing to pile so money's pouring ARC. in still yeah even while it is enduring this incredible uh in, incredible drawdown right are there other examples of this of managers who've who've had such a swoon and yet where the uh the followers have been just had such conviction that they've continued to to pile in so aggressively i mean this is this to me is remarkable well there, there's um i think there's a couple elements at play um, and Jeffrey Patak from Morningstar has, has been great because he looks at a lot of the times in history. He's speaking specifically to the 40 to 50% projections. 
And he says, look, here's the times in history funds have actually done this and their future, future returns. And it's, it's like a doesn't 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 bode well. But um, but, uh, you know, my perspective on this is and Eric has a great tweet where he talks about the three or four reasons why he thinks it has been enduring. Um, but I, I think it's. I think it's eventual. Like I, I think it's preordained. What's going to happen? And to me, um, I don't think. I think there's a point, and I think we're there now where you start to see the the redemptions. Um, and part of it, you look at like the various stages of grief, and like how, like look if you look at 2000, 2003, that lasted three years, right? Yeah, you had still in denial. The people, right? Oh, they're hoping yeah. it's coming back. They, they, then they're wanting, and like uh, that feeling of of going like, like buy the dip and then it's like the hope and then it's the despair and then it's, I don't care. Right. And, you know, look, that was me, you know, the late nineties coming out of university. I, I have PTSD from a lot of these companies, CMGI, Lucent Technologies, a lot of these, like I probably had carry for losses for like a decade for some of these stocks. And so, but you know, it, it, um, and we've kind of tweeted about this before. I think, you know, 20% down, you hit a certain level of, uh, you know, by the dip 40 it, and then it kinks every, I think 10% after that. I think we're to the point where um, it, it's like the eventual like despair part of this. And I, I think there is a actually, point where investors just stop saying, looking at statements, you know, and they, there's, there's an ostriching kind of head in the sand type of phenomenon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I well, if I go back this. to living my days, go ahead, Rod. I'll, I'll... So I was just going to say, I, I tweeted about this with Shopify because I, I had memories of Nortel right in Canada that represented the vast majority of the S and P TSX 60 was the darling of Canada. Every investor had that as a line item in their portfolios and they did the same type of thing. They bought on the way down and then they just gave up 10 years later. I get into the, into like the business and start looking at people's portfolios and they have this Nortel. Every single person had that equity line that they never sold. Right. And he just gave up on and, and it's just it's almost like a token of a reminder of, of stupidity that they had. And I was looking at Shopify and, and I was thinking, this is probably the next Nortel for every Canadian statement 10 years from now that is going to be right next to Nortel. Right. Maybe not. I mean, Nortel was a bit of a fraud. Uh, Shopify is actually a business model, but it's was it not a fraud? Um, Isn't there? No, nor, that's eh. Brex maybe. But nor, nor yeah, there was there was some really stuff with the uh, there was a anyway, pension, there was some pension issues and stuff. That there was yeah. there was some drama for yeah, sure. Yeah, fraud, 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 fraud. I'm not saying Shopify's yeah. it, but but it's certainly the valuations that got were outrageous, right? Much like I'm glad I'm glad you guys Canadians remember Brex because I was joking when Brex came out, the credit card company, and I was like, you guys just like clearly are young and don't have any experience because naming this company the exact name of one of the frauds, they'd be like, Hey, I'm going to do a startup today called I N R O N like Einron. And, you know, it'd be like, what? Well, no, that's a terrible name. Why would you ever do that? And so meanwhile, Brex is worth, I don't know, 10, $20 billion. So good for them, but I um, love it. But funny. But I, I, I listen, I remember, I remember 2000 very vividly. I was managing, People's money at that time. I remember getting the spin out from Nortel. I remember selling it at 80 for everybody because those who owned BCE did not need to own Nortel. And I remember getting in shit with those clients, watching it go to 120. And then I remember getting a pat on the back when those clients, when it passed through 60. And, you know, you just, you, you, it's a thankless job. You're, you're just wrong at some point. And the, um, you know, NASDAQ 5,000 pulling back to 4,000 
was the buying opportunity of a lifetime. And, you know, gosh, you got it at 3700 Oh, my God, is so good. And I remember one of the old brokers saying, yeah, that thing hits 2000 before it hits 5000 again. And I'm like one of the old saws, you know, uh, just like, as a matter of fact, me as a young kid going, oh, this is the best. Come on, technology's going to change everything, dude. It's going to be the best. We're going to be at 5000 in no time. And he freaking curmudgeonly old guy with a cigarette looks up and says it's 2000 before it's 5000 buddy. Yeah, I'm buying Philip <laughs> Morris, man. What do you, do you guys remember? Remember the infamous video from Kramer on Bear Stearns? The buy, buy, buy. If it was a deal at 40, it's a deal at 10. Yeah. <laughs> like a day before it went to two. It was, it's. If we're going to, if we're going to get on that theme of Kramer's calls, then. Oh, this, yeah. This yeah. is, is going to go. There's, there's always, you know, like there's, there's always like crazy, like we all know that, that humility is like the number one trait you need in to be an investor. You almost have to be a historian, a comedian, but have humility because we all have the scars and that's the best thing that can happen to you. But the amazing lack of humility you see in a lot of investors when they're doing really, really, really well, particularly like, like in the arc example, they put out that video. I don't know if you guys remember that was like at the peak of their performance that was just dunking on value investors and like the way it, like it was so cringe and you can find it on YouTube. Um, but you see that like that behavior all the time where it's at peaks and you're like, Oh my God, you didn't really just do that. Um, I can't believe it. Like that, that's why would you tempt the gods, the investment gods that way? Cause you're just going to take into the woodshed. Like it's just karma. I'm sorry at this point. Like, it was like when Chamath was comparing his funds to Berkshire. Yeah, no Not only that, got, the, got, got all the performance numbers wrong, but still compared them to Berkshire. Then it has a bad year. Berkshire's doing amazing this year. It's Berkshire weekend, by the way. Yeah, and yeah. then doesn't mention it the next year. Nope. Zero mentions the SPACs this year. And I'm like, come on, man. If you're going to... If you're going to take the W's, you got to take the L's. No, but and he like, explicitly wrote that he is no longer going to track himself to Berkshire Hathaway because they have taken a different route yeah. that no longer correlates to the same type of mentality or philosophy as Berkshire does. And, uh, and it no so, longer makes any sense. So they, you, can, you can put up numbers against Berkshire one year and then just say you're not going to do it anymore without showing the numbers as to why. It was, it was an outrageous letter. You have because to. You I have could to be not a, believe it. You have to be a good loser to exist in our world. Um, you have to talk like in my mind. You have to not only embrace the losers and learn from them. One of my favorite quotes, and I attribute this to Mark Yusko. I don't know who actually said it, but he says, "Every investment makes you richer or wiser, but never both." And I love that investment. Right? Like, what do you learn from your winners? Jack shit. Like, what do you learn from getting taken to the woodshed on some? idiotic stock or cryptocurrency well you could choose to learn something many don't they blame whatever um but you want to hear a great berkshire stat just while we're here i I saw this on twitter and i said this is the most amazing false sounding stat that's actually real that i've ever heard probably certainly this year but maybe for many years and chris chris bloomstrand was talking about this and he said you know going back to the 1960s the berkshire partnership buffett um could lose 99% drawdown from today and still be outperforming the S&P. And that is the most amazing statistic I've ever heard. Like, you're like, there's no way that's, that's actually financially, factually correct. And then you go do the math for whatever that is, 60 years, compounding at 20% versus 10. 
lop off 99% and you're still beating the S&P. And there's some lessons in there, obviously. Like, it's amazing. You, you compound at 20%, which is always funny when we we're going back earlier to talk about compounding at 50%. Wes, our buddy Wes, has a great article about like even God would get fired as an active manager. <laughs> but it's like if you compound at 20%, you eventually become one of the richest people in the world long enough, period. And it's always funny to look at people whether it's expectations, which was 17% for U.S. stocks, by the way, a year ago, whether it's like these hucksters that are talking about, you know, 300% gains and like all the advertising, you're like, yo, you don't need way too high. Like you can just project like slightly above average gains and you'll become incredibly rich. But um, wow, what a a stat. Yeah, Adam, you, you know, funny story about that article. When Wes published that article, that day you published an article about having an ominous investor that knew exactly which asset was going to win in X amount of years and a diversified um, you know, risk managed portfolio at the same level would have outperformed still even that mm-hmm, single mm-hmm. asset class or something like that. Sure. It was, it was yeah. interesting that you guys came up with it. It was same. a time in markets where that, that I guess prompted that, t- that kind of thinking and, and, and warranted that, that type of sharing, but yeah. It is, this is a very, very difficult business because when you're, even when you're doing well, like Mike always tells a story of, of, um, uh, cause we, we manage a, a wealth practice in Canada as well. And, and so we have these annual reviews and the, I remember back in 20, I'm going to get the years wrong, but 2011, you know, we did 8% and the market did whatever 20% or something. And, and clients were, were giving us grief for, you know, why did you do so poorly or why are we lagging? And then 2013, we did 8%, the market did minus, you know, 10 or 12% or something And clients were very happy. And we're like, you know, we said, we just kind of want to do 8% a year and we don't want to be tied to the market, but the, you know, it's just, it's just so hard, even when yeah. clients say that they want sort of steady returns of, of six to eight, 8%, which would be remarkably strong performance at you, a you, reasonable you, level of all. It's, that's not really what they want. You hit on a great, a couple of great things. One is, um, I was joking with someone the other day. I said, every investor professional, by the way, and they're guilty of this almost universally. They say, I, I'm a prop, I'm a process driven investor. We have a committee, rigorous process. Um, we best we invest based on process, not performance. And I say, really interesting, um, because ninety nine percent of the professional investors I talk to, yes, they have a process on what they buy, and then they have zero process on what they sell. And let me give you an example. In all the years you've been investing, all the years I've been investing, I've had plenty of people that will say, "Mad." Your fund, we got 12. So there's always one that's garbage performance over any time frame. <laughs> so Matt, your fund's garbage, it's underperforming, we're selling it. Um, you know what I've never had? And we've had plenty of these too. Uh, Meb, your fund is doing amazing. It's doing better it. than we expect. So we're going to sell it. <laughs> right. Never heard that once in my life, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, what they say is, Meb, you're brilliant. You're handsome. I can't believe how good this fund is. We're investing more. Okay, oh, it's um, making but, me cringe right now. But but going back to the, your <laughs> early part of the discussion, <laughs> so true. I love to say this for people, and and look, we've been through rough times and plenty of our strategies. I mean, look, we're a value trend shop at heart for the better part of our existence. Those two ideas were out of favor last two years. Hey, it's been very uncomfortable 
because so many things have been working as opposed to the prior seven years of uh, you don't you don't know what to do with it. Oh, preach, preach. Right, but so, but it's funny because people come up to me and they'd say, "Meb, you know, um, this fund's garbage. The strategy, like, it's down. I bought it two months ago and it's already down fifteen percent." I'll say, "Oh, it can get way worse than that," and they get taken (laughs) aback. They're like, "What?" I'm like, "That's nothing. Like, this fund could outperform for like five years in a row. Underperform by five years in a row. This fund could probably go down fifty percent." and be within the realm of like our expectation. And they'd be like, so surprised. And like, no one's ever going to tell them that, but that's the reality. And then you guys have heard me say this a lot. So it's old hat, but maybe the listeners haven't. And I've changed my mind on this, but, but if somebody asked me how long they need to give for one of our funds and allocations, I used to say 10 years in which no one will do, but like, that's the correct statistical answer. Uh, I think it's actually closer to 20 which no one's going to do also. Yeah. But statistically speaking, that's probably the right time horizon you need to determine uh, if this strategy is actually, you know, um, MEB data mined or actually thoughtful construction. So nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear well, what even then, you know, We've done some work like um, uh, a few teams have these long data sets, Goyle and, and Fama and et cetera, right? And some of them have these large, factor data sets and Wes, Wes's team publishes back to 1990, but the Q factor guys published back to 1962 or something like 120 different factor portfolio strategies. And so, you know, it, it's just, it's remarkable to go back and have a look and try to see if you can identify the strategies that are legitimate or that are, are likely to outperform in the future by examining their performance in the past using a wide variety of, of different ways of doing that. And I have yet to identify a method where you can say, you know, you know, uh, enterprise value to EBITDA or, or asset growth or, uh, you know, one of 160 different factors. Like, can you take the top half based on 40 years of performance and then, and then continue to do that on a rolling basis? And, and what works? Own them all? In equal weight. <laughs> was it there is actually no way to identify even over 30, 40, 50 year horizons, which ones um, are actually going to go on and, and outperform. Well, we, Corey, we do one like, is how long right? it would take to, to, to um, disprove that value was dead. Yeah. And it was and like 67 a, years. He used a really thoughtful method. Yeah. His factor Fimble winter, I think, and, and he used a Bayesian approach and yeah, it was depending on the volatility of the, of the strategy. It was like, I think low vol or, or bidding against beta required like 40 or 50 years and momentum required like 300 years or something. It was, I mean, the reality is you either, you either believe that this thing works for, and, and, you know, and, and we can probably get into some other, more technical ways that you might get gain more confidence, but, but just having the performance numbers there, there isn't enough time for you to determine that something is, uh, is a real thing during your life, your lifetime. You either believe it is because it makes sense to you or you don't. And you know, that's underline, underline economic reasoning as to why. (laughs) And then you just, the the time horizon diversified one. The time horizon mismatch is, is like one of the biggest problems where you ask people, you say, okay, um, the number one most universally held belief, and I don't know really anyone that doesn't hold this, is that stocks outperform bonds over time, right? Like everyone 
ironclad university held belief. But then you ask people, like, how long would you give stocks underperforming bonds before you would sell that allocation? How long would you tolerate that? And you can mask it, actually say not stocks and bonds, but just say this asset or the strategy. And usually it's like three years. People are crazy. They may say five. Um, but we all know stocks plenty of times have gone decades. In the U.S., even if you go back to the 1800s, it's like 60 years of similar performances bonds. 2020, stocks have gone 40 years in the U.S. with same performance as the long bond. And, you know, that that is a long time for something that is universally held belief that they outperform over time. But over time is the key part of that, you know, statement. Like, what do people really think over time means to what do people behave on what over time means? And, you know, that creates all the problems that we all know. Well, if, when you think about that, and if people did think about these things over 20 to 60 year time frames, the call you would get is, Meb, just check and making sure the process is the same or process is the same for your particular strategy because it's performed so shitty. We wanted to make sure we added some capital because we know over time the actual forward-looking returns are better than they were when we first made the investment. And so we're over the moon at this opportunity to get more money in at better prices. I'm going to tell you never, I've never got that call ever. I'm going to tell you guys a funny, I'm going to tell you a funny story is that, you know, we, we, um, we see on Twitter and elsewhere and everywhere. And it's, and it's a seductive thing to do. And I get it. It's like, you want to cheer when you're doing well, but, um, you know, I said, you know what, I want to write about one of our really terribly performing strategies, um, and share it, uh, just to like demonstrate like, Hey, we still believe in it. It's been a bad environment. Um, try to demonstrate some of this, you know, humility. Uh, and so we wrote an article a year ago, like January is called totally not crushing it. It's totally crushing it, but the not was in parentheses. And it was about a simple strategy of buying value and momentum stocks, but then hedging that you in the U S top down with S and P futures, oh. uh, based on top down, U.S. stock market valuation and trend. So you have like five different terrible decisions over the past five <laughs> years. This looks, by the way, and when I feel too depressed about it, I go and compare it to there's funds by AQR, Gotham, um, Vanguard, by the way. <laughs> Vanguard has a market neutral m- mutual fund, uh, which would surprise a lot of people. Uh, they all are as atrocious as ours. So I, I take solace in that. But um we wrote this article and no one's interested in this fund, by the way, it was just like just me. And, uh, and then sure enough, over the last two years, it's been fantastic. So like, I'm like talking to the investment gods. I'm like, all right, you show humility, talk about your losers and what do's poorly. <laughs> they will bless you with some you sacrifice know, to the gods, magic sprinkle dust of, you know, not taking a victory lap, but, but I got a lot of good responses from it because people, you know, all they hear all day is, we're crushing it. Here's why you buy our strategy. And I was like, look, here's a strategy that has sucked. No question about that. But we believe in, and here's the reasons we believe in it, and we think we'll do well. Now, no one allocated to it, let's be clear, because yep. it looked awful, trailing equity curve. And it's been amazeballs the past two years and this year uh, as well. And so this urge of like, 
And, and some of the old CTA writers used to write about this, Tom Basso and others, about allocating during drawdowns to strategies and managers. Because if you believe in a manager and, you know, the, the process you think is this. And by the way, for me, this applies to like assets and sort of strategies, quant strategies. Discretionary to me is like a total nightmare, like trying to decide if, you know, Kathy or David Einhorn or some, you know, discretionary manager is good or they've lost it or they just want to hang out in the Caribbean or they got divorced or their kids are mad. Like, like the thousand things that affects discretionary, like total nightmares. I don't really apply to that, but, and the other thing is like all the evidence shows, like you want to be investing in things that have been destroyed. I mean, look at energy two years ago, it was down 80%, 68%. So tobacco um, in 99. Yeah. I don't think people want to. Yeah, I, I don't think people want to necessarily suggest that that for every strategy that that if you're in a drawdown, it's it's a more attractive time to buy. There are definitely some strategies where when something's in a drawdown, give value, me a strategy that wouldn't example, be good right? in a drawdown that you would. So well, I just, strategies I don't, that you believe in and you want to allocate to. Yeah, so uh, all I'm both, saying is. You don't want to buy them at, at, at when they're performing well, but but I don't think they're any more generally attractive when they're well. Performing the, the, the consistent forward. concept is the a rebalance, right? So you're That's you're consistently coming back to target, and yeah. I think there is a parameter which you could argue you could quote over rebalance too. So if you're doing um, a basic risk party allocation, and you know you get to something like U.S. stocks are down eighty. Well, maybe you would rebalance more than to, the, to target. I don't know. It's a it's an idea that I think is probably incrementally helpful. I mean, and look at commodities over time, just along only like that's drive some. Yeah, of I the think assets are, are are something that you can kind of say when they're in a long drawdown that that are probably more attractive. I'm just saying, like in general strategies, I'm not sure momentum. Well, is, I, is, I think I think the better expectancy when it's in a drawdown or or huh. trend or what have you, right? But Value probably well, does. Presumably well, value. Hold, is, hold, on, right? a second. hold cheap, on a second. Right? You get, or you assets. Get, there, there's a couple things. One is I think the algorithm is, you know, you're in a period of drawdown or low returns. Is strategy broken? Yes or no? Yes. Abandoned strategy. Is strategy not broken? Well, then reallocate. But sure, beyond that, if, if, if you have a long-term return of X, whatever X is on a fund, and you know that the you're well below that return over some rolling period over the last five years or 10 years. At the end of the day, to get to the average, you must spend time at both above and below the average. So if strategy still works, you have some yeah, sort I mean, of expectation. You're, you're about what the average is. I guess here's, here's my example, right? Again, 160 different strategies, systematic strategies from the Q Factor website. If you, if you allocate based on momentum or very long-term performance, risk-adjusted alpha, risk-adjusted alpha, variety of different metrics, uh, it being very strong, that's a bad strategy. It being very weak, that's a bad strategy. Holding all of them and rebalancing, that's an effective right. strategy. So this is, what I, right? this is what we should differentiate, right? <laughs> what you don't want to do is say, values down, I'm going to abandon ship and rotate everything into growth. And then when growth is down, abandon that ship and rotate everything into momentum, right? Like th this idea of overconfidence, of hubris is what we're trying to mitigate against. And I think- You have a strategic allocation and the fact that something's down means you need to rebalance and add capital to it. 
Again, because if you believe now, in the factor, now the balance with your strategic allocation. Yeah. Exactly. So if you believe, but so there's there's certainly I think mean reversion in, in pure asset classes, yes. and there's certainly an expectation of positive returns if you believe in that and that's whatever strategy underlying. And then we've spoken endlessly about this very important factor, which is the premium that you can accomplish from pure entropy, right? From just noise, the ability. To the rebalancing premium of, of adding to the losers and taking away from the winners and harvesting that volatility is an area of return that when you're simply switching from one to the other, this idea of factor timing rather than factor equal weighting and rebalancing, factor timing is a problem because you're also fighting against this rebalancing premium. Anti, in, the, in your interview with Anti, he talked about the commodity premium right, of, of owning a basket of commodities and the fact that they don't actually have a positive yield independently, but because of their non-correlated nature, that the basket, you're able to harvest and create a positive risk premium from that balancing premium, right? So y- y- in order to make a decision so bold as to transition from one thing to the next, you have to be willing to give up whatever you think that rebalancing premium is. Right. So that's all that kind of is a rich tapestry of everything we're talking about. Right. There might be over rebalancing on the asset allocation side, regular rebalancing from a strategic perspective on the uh, on the strategy side. And and then there's obviously the, um, you know, whatever uh, discretionary layer you want to put on top. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like Meb, Meb alluded to the fact that there's some especially in asset classes. Again, this there's a rabbit hole here. Right. But there are better rebalancing frequencies than others in certain asset classes with certain strategies. No question about that. Right. So there's some, there's some thoughtfulness there, but I guess what I was just trying to caution against was giving everybody the, the view that you should, you should just sort of willy nilly emphasize strategies that are in a drawdown. And I'm not, I'm not sure that any of us is espousing that. that well, the, the good thing is no one will do that anyway. Yeah. Well, right. 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 <laughs> we're, we're nudging in a direction and, and <laughs> yeah. it's probably is constructive wow. because there's the right, there's a the left. Way. We're taking a position to try and nudge people <laughs> yeah. a little That's closer. Audience just middle. dropped by 80%. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. You know, I, I will give, I will ahead, give Meb, Meb credit though, because Meb, you, you know, you do step into the, the swamp a lot in public, right. In terms of like just continuing to try and hammer home these very basic concepts where you're you're fighting the prevailing zeitgeist right like several times a year for the last 10 or 12 years you've been out in public saying you know who owns trend funds right or what is your what is your allocation to trend funds you know zero to five percent five to ten ten to twenty and like 80 for most years it was 80 percent of zero to five right and and this year now we're you know maybe there's 30% 30% are in the five to 10 range. And so we're, we're moving and you do the same thing with value and you do the same thing with a lot of these, you know, long-term strategic categories that everybody should have a, a material exposure to. And, and most people just don't. Right. And it's, it's amazing it's, to see how much, like you say, vitriol that you, you well, get. it's funny on the trend, the trend one is sort of like an apathy. I feel like it's like a, people just don't really care that much. They're just like, eh, trend, like, whatever um they'll care again like they did in 09 or Mm -hmm. 03 probably will start caring this year at some point there's ones where people get downright like nasty and angry um obviously that's anything value related if you particularly slap on the cape label it's something uh really bad this year for some unknown reason on the home country bias 
which is really right. odd to me because um, they only specifically apply it to the U.S. But I'm like, do you think buying all your money in Greek stocks is a good idea? And everyone's like, no, that's stupid. Okay, well, like it's you know, but people go crazy on that one. Um, like, and so <laughs> I had a fun project for our team the other day, and I said, I'm, I'm not exactly how to find all these, but I wanted to demonstrate in a thoughtful way. Um, and it's sort of like they do this on one of the late night comedy shows. But I said, I wanted to find all the really hateful, nasty, troll, public and private uh, comments that people have made to me over the past decade. And I said, you know, I know I could find some of them. Like you just Google Meb Faber, fraud, scam, whatever, like the 10 keywords. And we started to find some. And I think, you know, having done this for long enough and you guys too have been in the public arena, I like I have a pretty thick skin and it's pretty funny. Um, I was on TV the other day and someone had said, um, have fun losing, uh, have fun losing money in your hairline. And so I said, I was like, I wanted to put these on, on shirts and there's some really like creative, great <laughs> ones over the years. And I was like, but I can't, I can't seem to find some of these. And I was like, ah, I know where they all are. They're in the Bogleheads forum. That's where I can find of like you're totally a bunch right. of like, you know, buy and hold investors. Like how, like how are these the nastiest people? I'm like, Twitter is like, you know, PG compared to some of these Bogleheads. And so I was, and so we, we were trying to write an article about just surviving, not just about investing it, but it like, you know, as a, as a entrepreneur too. Um, but there's some, there's some really, no, that Boglehead, cool. we get them or a head of marketing sends us some once in a while. Yeah. And my first in instinct is to get in their guns a blazing and start like, yeah. you know, throwing some truth at them. And then Mike's like, they're bogleheads. Like, there's nothing you can do. There's yeah, just, and, and Peruvian, Peruvian Man 26 is not going to like hide you. That's not a good, you know, avatar. But we, uh, right. but um, but for some reason, the the um, the home country bias elicits a lot of like crazy ones too. And I, you know, I don't know why that one in particular is such a. Such a hot, hot don't you think people, it's just the but... recency bias? I mean, really, the, the the tribe becomes more and more tribalistic as they're proven right over longer and longer time frames. I mean, they're just they've been right for so long, and I think that the home country bias in in the U.S. is a particularly relevant what are you issue there. About home country bias, Mike. If you invest in the S and P five hundred, you, you have all the, the international exposure, right? Yeah, right. The Except Texas for is exactly the same. Seventy no percent of the world's GDP is not. In the well, US. and I like to say, people, I say your your sample size is one out of forty five. That yeah. is not statistical proof. That's the yeah. opposite. Like you just proved my point that investing all your money in these other forty four countries was a terrible idea. And then even the U.S., like you look back in history, you know, someone's like, you know, something about home country bias not working. I said, oh, let's be clear. It has worked. It just hasn't worked in the past, you know, seven years. It's worked plenty of times in history where U.S. Oh, yeah. has been every, far worse. Roughly around every five to seven years. It works yeah. for five to seven years. I was like, you want to go talk to the all the Russians who just, you know, ninety had ninety five percent of their stock exposure in Russia, and you think it's a great idea to put it all there? No, of course not. It, it's crazy that home country bias. Peruvians as well, a tiny, tiny stock market. They have over ninety percent of their assets in in Peruvian stocks because I guess it's what they know, what they're pitched, right? They well, it's, feel it's like what they, they drive a, on the way to and from home every day. Yeah. Their, their their friends are working at those companies. Like how how can you not? I mean, it, it is a really a huge, tough thing to fight. There's a huge false insecurity, and I love talking to people about this. They're like, "No, man, I understand U.S. stocks." I say, "Okay, you know, tell me your top three: John Deere, IBM, Google, whatever it is." I say, "Okay." 
you know, and this is old Julian Robertson Tiger sort of concept. He's like, all right, who's the CFO? And they're like, what? I don't know CFO. I'm like, oh, but you really know these stocks that well? Like, what was their, you know, cash flow last quarter? Like, what was their shares outstanding? And like on and on. It's like, it's a very weird false sense of, and you're seeing this with all of the high flyers over the past year. It's like half of NASDAQ stocks are down 50% right now. And all these people are like, well, no, but like, I understand telemedicine is the future, Teladoc or Shopify or on and on, like all these stocks. It's a false sense of relation to the product, the business. So you're familiar with the business, but you're not familiar with the stock. And those two things are absolutely not the same thing as we learn many times throughout history. You're reminding me of of an experience with with Mike on a panel in New York City for for the Ritholtz group. <laughs> oh, can we just leave it nameless? <laughs> no, come on, man! I just love it. I just love it. We're, we're, we're never getting invited back again. Never happened. Yeah, it was about again. like investor education or something, and 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 investors need to understand what they own. And and Mike just going off on the moderator about how nobody understands anything that they own. Nobody, nobody understands, understands Coca Cola. Coca Cola. Mm. What's in a can of Coke? And then like basically. All the way back from you know from from what's in the can of Coke to the, like Coke's business model and distribution and value the brand and nobody knows anything can't be told. <laughs> Before you use a toilet, you have to understand how the toilet works. Do yeah, you know a how one. a toilet works? Yeah, yeah maybe you know. Certainly, <laughs> the audience seemed to love it. I don't know about the organizers. <laughs> By the well, way, Rod, Peru's having a pretty good stock market. I just looked it up. They're actually having a decent return this year. Commodity based, of course. Commodity based. Listen, when the it's gone nowhere for ten years, goes, but, but I know, I know. In uh, so, oh wait, happens do pretty well, you know, up because of all the stuff that we do. Uh, I have some Peruvian clients that were down seventy five plus percent. Oh nine happens. I think I do like nine percent. Peru does 169% because the commodity bull market cycle had not finished, right? Could you imagine the vitriol that I got from those Peruvian clients? How yeah. could you have possibly underperformed so much? And it happened that night in 2009, the best performing global market was the Peruvian stock market, right? So I've, I've told that my brothers and everybody that were like, the new president comes in, you know, we've had like seven presidents in the last 18 months and nothing happens because the constitution that Fujimori created at the hands of the United States is actually held up. Like it's actually strong enough so that people want to continue to do business. I've said that it doesn't matter what your president are. Do not get your money out of Peru. You are going to make a killing this this decade. You're just going to make a killing. And it's it's worked out pretty nicely. I just, I, I, you know, the, the buy and hold thing, I think Paul Nielsen uh, comment, the funniest thing is that Home country bias boglehead is a buy and hold everything, but not but only U.S. Right? This idea that buy and hold is is buying the S and P five hundred or the Vanguard twenty five hundred stocks. It seems like a like a passive long uh, non-bias investment, but it's a it's a massive bet, right? This is a massive single bet. It's it's just outrageous. It's not How just home country bias, though. It's it's also you know equity bias too, right? It's it's I want to be passive, which means I'm going to own the S and P 500, which means I'm not going to own all of the myriad other global asset classes that are available to me. And if you believe in passive, you believe in efficient markets, and the average investor, just averaging every investor's view, is going to have the optimal portfolio. But you're going to concentrate all your money in the S&P 500. That's not a passive bet. It's a highly concentrated bet. And, but no matter how often you repeat that, 
that just doesn't seem to sink in. All right, I got a question for you, man. Mm-hmm. Talked about how everybody was in uh, into trend in 09. What does the average advisor portfolio look like in 2032, in your opinion? Right now, right now, what I'm yeah, seeing I mean, is like 80, 20, look, man, and the 20 I, is corporate bonds. I, I, I don't know different than what we have today, probably. Really? Um, you know, I think... I love my advisors, but often, you know, if you go to these institutional conferences, um, you see the flavor du jour every couple of years. Doesn't matter if it's MLPs, doesn't matter if it's uh, reverse Canadian, uh, Canadian, Chinese companies, um, doesn't matter if it's energy. Now, probably you'll see the liquid alts and the trend uh, start to get some, some curiosity those are kind of rinse repeat. And that's in sort of like the, the 20% over here bucket that like people get attracted to and barf up after they do poorly or for a few years. Um, the ballast of like a, uh, home biased portfolio. I think I, I, it won't be, I don't, I do, I cannot fathom it would be any different. Um, the trend following part to me is always funny because if you remove someone's bias and in, in any of the trend following indexes, um, over time and, and blind the what actually has like the biggest benefit to a traditional portfolio, it's almost universally always trend in mm-hmm. some form, right? Um, you can add some of the, I mean, depends on what the starting point is. Like if you have no real assets, which is a trend, by the way, that almost no investors, you guys are Canadians different, almost no American investors have real asset exposure, you know, on our Twitter polls, like we ask and no one does, you know, um, that's clearly a mistake, particularly look at the last year. Um, so there's things, it's like this old, um, uh, you know, will it go into the optimizer? Will it help? You know, trend clearly does. You just have to deal with like the, the suck same as any asset, right? Like that's the thing. Um, so anyway, I don't think it's any different, you know, I can't imagine. Um, when you say trend, tell me, tell me what happened from 2030 to 2032, and then I'll tell you what they own. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when you say trend, Ned, like a lot of, I think a lot of people still sort of think of trend as being like, um, I'm a trend follower by following a 200 moving average, 200 moving average strategy on the S&P. Right. But I don't, that's not really what you're referring to. Right? You know, I think what most, I would say when most people, think about it. I would actually assume they thought they think managed futures. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, you know, they're, they're like, it's like saying value. There's like, obviously a emerging markets value fund is different from a DFA USA fund is different from a, um, valuation ensemble, which is different from a dividend fund, right? Like even the dividend funds are, are different. They're cousins. And to me, it's the decision of like, are you making this broad, decision in the first place. Okay. Then what markets? Okay. And then is it long, short, et cetera. You know, I I think in many cases of the just broad trend, like you want the beta of trend following. And I think, and we've said this a lot to a traditional portfolio that's long only a long, short style managed futures to me is probably the best um, compliment because it's the, probably the least correlated Mm-hmm. on an absolute ba- basis for a long period. If you're going to do trend on like the whole portfolio, for me, it's long flat, you know, because shorting, I mean, look, shorting is great, but it's 
it's tough. Most of the, even the managed futures, most of the profit over time tends to be from the long, the long side, but it just depends what you're starting with. If you're starting from scratch, I'll take long flat. That's my desert Island portfolio. Like I, like to me, a, a trend long flat uh, is, is better. But if you start with a traditional portfolio, which is almost what everyone does, long short is, is a better complement to that. Because in, in essence, the short will end up starting to flatten you out. Flatten out diversifies the other stuff, right? Like it's a very specific worldview of, um, you know, a traditional portfolio 60, 40, like you guys obviously start to gravitate towards a more thoughtful approach to that, including real assets, including, you know, some, some vol targeting ideas. But then to me, um, the 60, 40 hedge, cause like, let's look, look at this year. Like, so many investors assume bonds are going to help, you know, no matter what. And then you have this environment where you have rising inflation. So what really helps there? Well, commodities help, real assets, REITs, tips. But being short those assets also helps, you know, on the, on the managed futures side. So the problem with managed futures, you know, often, um, you know, to me is like, again, I want the beta of it. Like, I don't even really care about a specific manager so much. I would just like to own some general signal. yeah signal. well yeah. as you say i mean that we, we've experienced pretty significant profits from shorting bonds as an example yeah. of a way to fight inflation yeah. and that's a that's a, a misunderstood concept and i think it's tough right so how do you how do you continue to have a position in your portfolio that shorts bonds when you started with a rate of 20 percent? call it in 1982 and it went to zero that's that's a that's a pretty sharp stick in your eye for 47 we, years we um a good example like the the Japanese trades the yen seems to be cratering currently so if you guys want to go skiing in Japan next year talk to me because it's like twenty percent off in, that's sale. a great idea in, that's the, uh, that's the next uh, in, the fin when do we have to book conference that? when when do we have to book that when do we have to make uh, the commitment to you to summer do that? summertime probably okay um fall time even um awesome trip but uh, we should do that um the um but uh. Going back to Auntie's book, you know, you guys, when you chatted with him, kind of was was my prep material. And so, but I looked in the book, I got the one chart and I was like, oh man, this chart is beautiful because it shows a good example of a widely held belief, which is bonds are always going to help stocks and a downturn is not guaranteed, right? And you look at plenty of times in history a lot of asset classes, like they help on average, but sometimes like you cannot count on it to help. And so, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, like being able to short bonds, and I think managed futures are probably universally having a monster year this year. I don't know that, but I would, my, I assume, Yep. Um, you know, being able to shorten that environment is, is a big um, keeping you in the game sort of, sort of idea. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. if you were to look across managed futures, like if just looking at our managed futures about, we have the same PL from our short bond trades as we do from our long energy trades, right? Like that's how important the short bond component has been for our, for, um, for trend followers and managed futures funds this year. And I think that that is largely unrecognized. Everyone's like, I want to get access to commodities, but being able to short things that are like functionally and mechanically going to do badly in an inflationary environment is- The funny is thing is helpful. too, Adam, though, how- some long-term, long, long uh, live trend followers are talking about how that doesn't make money ever. 
and that what, they, what doesn't they make money ever uh, shorting, shorting, bonds. shorting bonds because whatever roll yield etc <laughs> i think niederhofer is famous for saying well, no no that. the reality is if you go back through if you know right. we've, we've, we've published on this right if you go yeah. back to 1990 and you and you examine the attribution of PL for bonds all of Precisely. the PL, like 125% of the PL comes from the long side because the short side of a trend following bond strategy is negatively accretive. It has negative returns, right? More, moreover, <clears throat> moreover, I mean, the, the bear markets that have existed historically have not been, the CTAs have not made most of their money from shorting equities. They've made most of their money from going long treasuries, right? So in, in markets, an environment, yes. yeah, in an environment of benign inflation and bear markets, you're going to see treasuries be the safe haven. Yep. Try to do that in the 70s. Try to use, yeah. try to go long bonds to protect against bear markets in the 1970s. You're done. Yeah. Try to do it today. Which is why it's, which is why it's so important to be asset class agnostic. It, it's easy to say, I think hard for a lot of people to do, and you guys do it probably more than anybody, but so many people, you know, they just get, they, they adhere to one environment and that environment changes. Like you're up Schitt's Creek, man. Like, like, what do you, like, that's, that's a terrible place to be. I, you know, and, and I said, I've been saying this for years. I said, you know, people say, like, what, what keeps you up at night? I said, nothing. I sleep fine. However, if I was an allocator and a lot of traditional allocators, the nightmare scenario for them is a big fat U S stock market dump and bonds dump too. And, 2022 this is happening now whether it gets worse or whether it gets better who knows but that is a nightmare scenario for them because what they've done over the past five years and they said well we know we can't get returns from stocks and bonds so you know what we're gonna buy private equity well guess what that's just like one and a half times leveraged stocks so you just made the problem worse and you know this has been their savior, and it's going to. But we're not marking the market there, though. I mean, I think I think we're in the I think we're in the beginning stages of a of a much longer sort of potentiality, which is going to force them to market to market. But yeah, thus too. far, mm. the marking to market is the thing that saves them. That they can't look at it and they don't report it. It doesn't affect yeah. the funding rates. I mean, don't, don't get, you think? Like, like, every, isn't that why they're every, doing it? But every three years is kind of like when people stick around for as the board member of that of that underlying strategy, right? So if you can stick around long enough where you can't mark to market and be ex, be blamed on you, then you're in good shape. That this is why it's useful, right? the The reality is, though, is valuations high means returns low. It doesn't matter that your volatility is doled out over three years. You're gonna ex- you should expect a lower rate of return from private equity. And if you're levered one and a half, then you should expect an even lower on the downside. So that should be the fiduciary responsibility of identifying what, like, what it's likely to be like in the next three years, not these cover your ass and keep your job thing that we tend to see. Right? It's, just, it's unfortunate, but you're right. That is the nightmare scenario, the underfunded uh, pension plans that exist out there that are 100%, like that are 90% bonds. 10% equity well, too. The pension like, funds have a have a bit of a ballast, right? Because their discount rates are also rising. So their the the value of their liabilities is also shrinking while their assets are shrinking. So there's a mm-hmm. there's a bit of an offset there. Whereas, for example, endowments, which have really embraced the private equity and private credit. I mean, look, endowments have been bailed out because even while EBITDA yields on private equity uh vintages have continued to decline over the last decade the cost of capital has declined at the same rate 
because rates continued to go down and spreads continued to compress. But I think we're coming into an environment where the EBITDA yields on new deals are, are crappy and the cost of capital is, is much, much higher. And so the expected return on new vintages is going to be, I think a lot of endowments and, and institutions who've been gravitating towards private equity are in for a bit of a rude awakening over the next five to seven years. But, um, you know, that everyone's got to learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah, I think it went from 5x EBITDA to 12% EBITDA in the last five years, 12 times yeah. EBITDA. Yeah. So uh, what? What? But but Mem, don't we have? uh, Aren't hedge funds expected to return between twenty and and uh, fifteen and twenty percent over the (laughs) recent horizon from all pension plans and uh, it's like the so they're going to Charlie Munger quote. There's a great Charlie Munger quote on that where basically he's like talking to somebody and they're like twenty percent. He's like, he knows that's impossible, but he has to claim twenty percent plus expected returns because no one will buy the fund otherwise, right? Like it's this classic game of just like, you know, you're not going to do that, but you have to say it. Otherwise no one will invest. And so I see, I like, I do a lot of angel investing and I see some of the claims uh, these guys make. And I'm just like, man, you better hope the SEC never digs into these because what you are claiming is um, just full cringe, right? Like this, this is not something you should be saying on, on paper. So uh, Mike you know. and I witnessed a, an uncharacteristic moment of truth from a very large Canadian institutional investor. Remember this, Mike, five or six years ago, maybe a little longer. We went to this presentation from the CIO of the largest municipal pension plan in Canada, and she described their uh, RFP process. And she said, first of all, they sourced their providers, their advisors from the board who suggested like nine different uh, potential advisors, red flags everywhere, right? Um, but anyway, so they they went out to these nine different advisors uh, with, you know, they said they needed 5% above inflation uh, in perpetuity. And eight of the nine advisors came back and said, we cannot propose a portfolio that meets your constraints that will achieve that 5% above inflation, Right. One per- one of them came back and said, "Yep, we have. Here's the portfolio we propose that we think will meet that uh, that requirement." Who do you think the plan went with? <laughs> There's a lesson in there, you guys. This is why none of us are managing fifty billion. So, yeah. oh my god, uh, this is uh, we we need to. We got to get out our own way. God, <laughs> yeah. it astonishing. Uh, this is too good. Well, man, what um, yeah. what else are you working on these days? Uh, you still doing well, the yeah, chart? I was going to say, I was going to say, Meb, what, what what's the thing you're going to write about next? Like uh, like Vamo was like what what's on the radar now as being absolute dog poo that you're like, well, this has got to be attractive. Okay, well, you just asked like three separate <laughs> questions, but I'll, yeah, I'll answer the last answer one. The one you like best? I'll ask, I'll answer <laughs> the last one carefully. Um, because obviously we're a fund manager, but I'm not, I'm not going to speak to any specific fund. Sure, this yeah. is just conceptually. Um, if you're looking at emerging markets and particularly value in emerging markets, um, Russia was obviously a giant crater for many of these funds. Now, the interesting part of this uh, is all those funds have now written down those stocks to zero. So if you buy an ETF in an emerging market fund and 95% of emerging market funds held Russian stocks, um, 
those for ETF or usually, I guess, assume for the mutual funds too, they're valuing those at zero. Well, um, as we know anything about probabilities, you know, if you had to game plan the Russian stock market outcome, you know, there's, I don't know, let's call it two thirds probability that this resolves over the next year, Russian stocks start trading in some capacity, maybe it's 50% chance, I'm not sure. And they're worth, I don't know, 20 cents on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar, maybe, I'm not sure. Um, There's a minority chance, 10, 20% that the situation gets worse. And the, you know, um, those stocks are forever zeros. They're just gone. Um, Just like they were in 1918 during the Bolshevik revolution, Russian stocks went to zero. Um, There's also a chance 10 Prediction markets have it at 20. I think that's too high, but that there's regime change, in which case those stocks are not only worth par, they're probably worth more than par because they were trading at extremely low valuations prior to this. Already, yeah. Already. So it could be a, a, a par. And a par, you know, from where they, they're marked at zero, but even if they were marked at 10 cents, um, it would be a, you know, 10 bagger on those stocks, maybe 20. My point being, and you have to be agnostic as to political yada yada. Um, there, you're getting a free call option in any emerging market fund that owns those stocks. Now, some may have only owned one percent of their NAV prior to the this whole shebang. Some may have held ten percent. Now, I'm not talking about the ones that are all in because I have no idea how those actually would trade because they got halted. But the ones that are freely trading. It's an interesting opportunity to pick up something that has an embedded free call option that I think is interesting. An emerging market value already is cheap. A lot of Eastern Europe, a lot of the rest of the world, um, Latin America, some of Asia is sprinkled in there too. I think that's an interesting opportunity for the next five, 10 years. No idea what's going to happen the next year. Um, And interesting, if you told most listeners that the ruble is actually higher than where it was before the invasion, they would... They were, huh? Mm-hmm. Really? That's interesting. Um, but there's the old Rockefeller quote. And again, this is insensitive quote, but we're speaking specifically just to markets and history. Uh, you know, the quote was buy, um, sell on the sound of cannons, buy on the sound of, no, backwards, sorry. Trump. Buy yeah. on the sound of cannons, sell on the sound of trumpets. Um, but, you know, to me, I look, I'm an optimist, pacifist. I want this to resolve. Hopefully it will. In a, in a meaningful scenario, probably won't. But um, but there is a scenario that, you know, the Russian people, the Russian companies, which are not the administration, um, ditto for every gov- shit government in the world, right? <laughs> so uh, there's an opportunity there for emerging markets, I think, that's, that's interesting for long-term investors. Um, but that wasn't the second question. That was just the first, the last question. The second question is, what am I writing and thinking about? Um, I put, there's two books I really want to put together and I hate writing books. So it's complicated. Um, now that we're at a sell in May and go away for the summer, I'm looking forward to a sabbatical for the next five months of just, uh, not watching markets. Um, there's one book where I'm really motivated to try to see if we could frame getting everyone to be an investor, particularly the younger cohort, but in the right way, not the Robin hood way, which I think is a company that history will not judge kindly, by the way but to try to educate people to be all be investors, right? 
And so I've been trying to think of a good way to connect with um, people to drive home this message. And one of the best ways I've been thinking of is saying, hey, look at all these famous celebrities, athletes. And we also include regular Joes. So George Clooney, Shaq, the Williams sisters, um, Ashton Kutcher, on and on and on. They made decent money at their day job, but they made the big money. Dre, 50 Cent. 50 the Cent. Big money from business, right? Whether it's tequila, headphones, um, clothing, on and on. And so this is kind of this in- instructive book, I think, that is thoughtful. That's done. And the, the, the tentative co- title is like called Be the Owner, where you just like, it doesn't, you don't have to go start an entrepreneurship venture. It could be like, hey, Michael Jordan got this amazing Nike endorsement deal. Well, you're probably not going to get an endorsement deal, but what if you bought Nike stock? You know, at that time, how would it have been? I don't know. Anyway, um, that's maybe a summer project. Uh, and there's a kind of picture book version of that I want to do. But again, th- these, these um, I would have liked to have done the last two summers and got, got a pandemic and, a you know, whatever we have coming down the pike. pike now, now, if somebody know. buys the book, will you be able to buy Lambo in six months? Or is that not in the cards? <laughs> My friends who have Lambos all say... It's like the most uncomfortable car. Like, and they're like, in no way do I enjoy driving this car. My favorite example, and I, I like cars. I'm kind of a car guy. Shitty cars, like old SUVs. Um, uh, my favorite was, like, my first car was a, a 1980s Land Cruiser. I had a 1960s before uh, before child. But um, I love Morgan Housel in his book, which is, he could buy one because he sold a million copies. I give all mine away. So that's the, that's my problem is we've given away I don't know if it's a million yet, but it's certainly hundreds of thousands. Um, the uh, He had a great analogy about cars where he said, you know, the thing about being a millionaire and, and about people who want to, you know, get, get rich is he's like, he's like, used to be a valet. And he's like, everyone sees the Lambo pull up and you, you go down in LA, you see these cars everywhere. Crazy. I, I was like getting coffee and I saw the ugliest car I've ever seen. It was like a Rolls Royce SUV. And I was like, that is the ugliest thing. Anyway, I've seen those, but everyone, every, sorry, if you guys have one in the Cayman, um, <laughs> people, people say they look at the car, pull up to the valet and they're like, wow, amazing. Look at that Lambo. And then person gets out and walks away. But his analogy, and this is Morgan, I'm paraphrasing. He's like, no one, I mean, they look at the person to get out and like, you know, is that Drake? No. Okay. Um, They'd never look at the person and say, I want to be that person. They say, I want to be that person in the car, right? But then the person in the car is thinking, everyone out there is looking at me and wants to be me. And it's not, it's not a connect. It's a disconnect, right? And so it's just when you think about money and having money, uh, it's like everyone wants to spend a million dollars because they think it's going to give them this sort of aura. When in reality, people, people are not Care looking at it. about the money, not the person. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, anyway, uh, uh, I, I like the experience. So I'll go with you guys to Vegas if you want to go drive the cars around the track for like 500 bucks. But the, the one you really want to do there is not the supercars. It's the Baja truck where you launch off these oh. giant jumps. And it is so much fun. What's a Baja uh, truck? It's what? Kind of that, that yeah, Baja it, man. I don't know. It's I, like like I go on a motorcycle and a bike. Like what, what? it's like the dune buggy. You know, uh, yeah. uh, they're like the super steroided up dune buggies, like the Razor, yeah, the Raptors, oh, like, Razors. 
like okay. Gemma Hardy yeah, makes yeah. a bunch of like I mean super the, steroid. It has a frame though. It's kind of like a the, tiny yeah. frame. A real yeah, cage. Cage. So <laughs> yeah, you guys at my size, there are no sports cars for me so i'm i'm with you Mab. big big old like in a minute anyway you gotta be like shack when shack had his car he sat in the back seat i forget which one they just removed the front seat altogether so he just sat where the back seat would have been (laughs) i love the i love the old uh the 1972 uh, ford bronco two-door take the roof off that thing is a masterpiece i had a reservation for the new bronco and actually uh really liked it um just not practical in la like drive that thing drive if you guys have driven one it's pretty fun but it's like it it's a truck like it yeah. you want that in toronto or calgary you don't want it, it up in ford LA. yeah oh, the new bronco. bronco's nice i saw them I, you have to get the really nice one they're they kind of and the lesser versions are not quite as trucky uh, no for, the lesser version is like a rav4 not a rav4 yeah, exactly. yeah sort of sort of like that the crv it's like a CRV. yeah like the the, the sort of yeah uh, that's a philbrick truck if i've ever seen one yeah Right up your alley. Good, a good Ford truck too. Drives like a truck. Drives like a. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I just I'm I, I reserve my Cybertruck. Amazing, love that. That would be I quite a change Cybertruck. from the Leaf, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. From that one. Of the, no, this Cybertruck drives a Nissan. Here's what I drive. I actually like. I'm shocked because everybody's like, "Oh my god, you're going to buy a Cybertruck? That's super expensive. They're forty grand. You can get a Cybertruck well, at forty. You see the, the light, the Ford, the Ford ones now, they like power your house. Like you can like, well, power that's your the same thing for, like for, for Tesla lights. I bought, yeah. so I reserved a Ford F-150 Lightning Yeah, because it's also like 40 grand. But then I saw the Cybertruck in two years and I'm like, uh, this Cybertruck crushes a Ford F-150 in every respect, like in every element, like it just, you just go down the list. It's not nowhere close. So as yeah, soon but as I, I get my Ford, like I'll probably get the Ford would. first have the same tendency to elaborate on <laughs> like their tesla's stuff does you, not quite match you, you shut claim you shut your blasphemous <laughs> okay, mouth okay. Okay? okay just take it okay. uh, take it back right. my friend all right and then <laughs> and you know what i'll 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 give you the ford f-150 for free oh, and then we can do you. a little you know what you know there's what a I drag racing meb there's a drag racing um uh, that just opened up on island and uh, I want you to be here when Mike and I go head to head. On our well, it's LA, trucks. so there's there's a there's a drag queen bingo here, and you guys come visit me. And we'll take you to that. Slightly different than the drag racing, but <laughs> drag queen drag. racing. Uh, we might oh, have, yes. but so I Mike tell you, you know, there for sure. One of my least favorite things people uh, like the the phrasing they love to use on stocks is like in Tesla. I look, I own a Tesla, but um, uh, was. Um, Hey, I made so much money on Tesla stock. Like it paid, paid for the car, like that phrasing. And I actually wanted to be like, as a Tesla owner, it'd be like, I shorted the stock. I made so much money on a short that it pays for this. Like, you know, never hears anyone say the other or never hear anyone say, you know what? I lost so much money on this stock. I have to sell my car. Right. Like they never, <laughs> they never say that. So anyway, on that note, I love it. Yeah. Meb, you've been very kind with your time as always. Very entertaining stories. Um, where can we find you? I think people already know, but you can, I'm homeless. So you can find me looking like the dude just wandering around Los Angeles. And if you see me wave at me, uh, it, 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 it might be a homeless person. Buy you a burger and a coffee. Yeah. Back of um, yeah, man, you know, um, there's not too many mebs out there. Although I was, I was, um, laughing this morning. I was going to tweet this. And, 
I was, I was going to tweet this where I said, you know, you can only use so much market history, like as a stats person, there's only so much in the past. Like we joke about how much uh, 120 years, but in reality, it's actually not that much. And I said, you know, based on my history, I'm a coffee drinker. I drink coffee every day. It's a, it's a uh, beloved um, addiction of mine. But I say every time I go get coffee, my name is Meb, M-E-B, I even spell it. I've had probably a hundred variants and usually it's Ben or it's Mel, you know, when they call it out. And I said today, despite my history of 20 years of coffee drinking and I got an entirely new one and it was Mev, M-E-V-E. <laughs> you can see it on my, on my coffee here. I was oh. so happy about it. So uh, I get excited when they come up with a new one. There's little pleasures in life. Um, I don't even remember what we were talking about. Oh, the where can you find what, me? So, uh, what's that? Where we can find you. Uh, you can find me hopefully in the Caymans in the coming months, um, uh, sabbatical and finishing these books, uh, driving around drag racing. Um, in the meantime, I'll be in Los Angeles, Manhattan beach. Um, my day job is running Cambria funds. Um, my, uh, my, uh, side job is the idea farm. You can watch me. Um, Where can people sign up for that? Do you get the free? Yeah, the, the idea, idea farm. The idea farm. Com. Com. Yeah, yeah, simple. And it's free um, now. When when is it actually free? Is it free now or Sunday or today. when does it actually go? Free on? as of today. Yeah, Ooh. I just saved. This is a fifteen hundred dollar free call. Saved five hundred dollars each, and then I said, you know, amortize it for the next ten years. So really, this is like a twenty thousand dollar gift, you guys. Um, Thank you. By the talk way. about hubris. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Revenue um, source. Yeah, the. Uh, so uh, any of those places, shoot me an email, Twitter, uh, all those places uh, are, are good to go. And you're one of the few guys that actually picks up the phone for random dudes who want to. Yeah. Okay. Do not call me. That. We'll edit that out. Do not call me on a FaceTime. 555. 5555. I used to have a, my, um, <laughs> our, our, our work office number is very close to what you just said, by the way. <laughs> it's like off by like one number. So why am I not surprised? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Of course you do. It's actually eight six seven five three oh nine. Listeners, call me LA area code eight six seven five three oh nine. Your <laughs> brother in law or something. Nah, well, no one yeah, under forty right gets that. So no, I know. Just, Ron, Ron doesn't know it either. <laughs> yeah. okay. You guys can play it for him after uh after uh after All right. the, the I'll sing a bar on the way out. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Well, thanks, yes. Matt. Really appreciate your time as per usual. Do it get fun. to Cayman Islands. Come and see let's me figure here out too. The, let's figure out yeah. Japan. Let's figure out Japan. I'm in. I'm I've got to figure guest. it out. You guys just got to go and pay for me, and that's it. We're, we'll call Don, it Well, it's easy. We got a guy. I'll be your tour guide. Yeah, yeah Don. Arigato gozaimasu. <laughs> so Arigato when, gozaimasu. when are the dates? Just uh, send us the dates. Yeah. I can't even. I don't even know if that's. Can you do that now? I don't know. Come, come back. Speak Japanese. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that was legitimate Japanese. I did six months. Okay. And I and I remember three words. Legitimate Japanese, Japanese verified by Rodrigo. <laughs> exactly. I don't even exactly know. Right. It just got better first. there. It just got better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all, all right. right. All Thanks the best. Thanks all the best. Thank Thank you. All right, y'all. Fam. Have a great weekend. You too, you brother. Too. Good luck with your guys. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. 
If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.